0: the blaze radio network on demand
1: lock and load
0: this is steve dace the steve dace show
2: And greetings. Happy Tuesday. Welcome to the Steve Dace Show here live on The Blaze On Demand at CRTV. I am Steve Dace. Todd and Aaron are here with me as well. Let us know what you think about what we think. Steve at SteveDace.com is the email address. You can like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Steve Show. Coming up a little bit later on on today's program, a little Pop Culture Tuesday where we take a look at the intersection between culture and conservatism. It's got a little Halloween flavor. As the kids say today, the kids do say that today. Aaron,
3: do they say that today? Uh, Am I a kid to you, Steve? Am am I a kid? I'm I'm trying to be. Yes, they say that.
2: Uh, uh, You talking to me? What, are you giving me a De Niro? (laughs) Should I come back with a Pesci? (laughs) Do I amuse you? Do I amuse you? (laughs) Am I funny to you? (laughs) It's going to be one of those days, Uh, right? We're uh, Three minutes in, cranky millennial guy has arrived. So you know what that means, Todd? We gotta kick him a lot. Also coming up a little bit later on. Fake news or not makes its return as we are back to regular order. But let's begin as we always do with what happened while we were away.
3: What happened while we were away brought to you by what cults also look like.
0: What are you guys hoping to hear President Trump speak about today?
4: The caravan.
0: I would like to know a little bit more about what's what he's going to do, because that's an invasion of our country. And, um, you know, none of us here like it. So we'll see what he has to say about it tonight. But I love everything that comes out of his mouth. So It doesn't really matter what he says. We, we'll support it.
3: Republicans are outpacing Democrats in early voting in some key states like Arizona, Florida, Georgia, Indiana, Montana, Tennessee, and Texas. That's according to Target Smart and NBC News. Researchers at Arizona State University said they found 25% of the millennials they surveyed had reported clinically significant levels of stress in the aftermath of the 2016 election. Anatomy does not determine gender, experts say. Experts say. Experts say.
1: You keep using the word. I don't think it means what you think it means.
3: Michael Avenetti is on the hook for nearly $5 million after a court found he failed to reimburse a former colleague. Also, his landlord won a court order evicting his firm because it skipped the last four months of rent. So that's cool. And finally, here's this.
0: Hi, I'm a spokesperson for the Democratic Party, and I'm here to tell you why you need to vote blue this November. Democrats are the party of love and tolerance. We promote inclusion and acceptance, peace, and goodwill. Republicans don't care about any of these things. They just want to talk about record unemployment, the economy, and keeping communities safe. Fascists. Democrats have positive, practical priorities, like abolishing the electoral college, eliminating due process, and banning hate speech. These are the values of the American people. Well, at least Americans that live in San Francisco and New York. Republicans often use fear-mongering rhetoric like constitution or liberty. Democrats condemn such language as divisive and instead focus on more unifying topics like repealing the Second Amendment or kneeling for the national anthem.
3: And that's what happened while we were away in two minutes or less.
2: All right, several things there we need to unpack uh, in the opening uh, salvo of the program. The early voting numbers. Uh, let's start there. Uh, I haven't done done as much wonky stuff in this election cycle as I have in years past, mainly because I have I have no idea how much of all that wonky stuff I got pretty good at matters anymore. And you know, my mama taught me to to work smart and not work hard, so I'm not going to put in all this wonky work only to then watch the results come in. I'm like, I just wasted four six months <laughs> do of my you, life. Do you
1: remember all the wonky stuff you did pre 2016, yes. and then that
2: night, oh. Interesting. Yeah, so I I went into this election campaign. I told everybody when it started, I I am not doing a bunch of wonky stuff because I don't know. We don't know if what we saw in 2016 was an outlier or Correct. a paradigm shifter, and until the 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 you know the voters tell us that. Then you know I got other things I can do with my time, like you know Madden's out, uh, and I'll be doing that uh, instead of a bunch of wonky stuff that may not matter. But we will take a be a brief detour into the wonky because in this case I think it kind of does matter. Those early voting numbers uh, matter for two reasons. Uh, one, because typically Republicans are reticent to do early voting, uh, and I've been a part of efforts to try and get. Uh, Repu- registered Republican voters to vote early because, you know, the whole bird in the hand is better than two in the Bush thing, right? You vote now, we don't have to worry about getting you there on, elect- on, on, on election day. But, you know, if Republicans tend to be a little more traditionalist, right? And so they sort of view it as part of the the civic experience uh, to to vote on election day. And so because of that, they're often a lot more hesitant to take part. So even in years where, um, the the advanced polling for Republicans was better. Um, you didn't see huge early voting surges for Republicans and one of the things we did learn in 2016 is a lot of the forecasters that do what I used to do for a living till I took temporary retirement till the voters told me how to do my job is is you know, one of the things that made me good at this is a lot of is, is I was one of the first people to recognize that what Obama was doing with early voting was not just getting already Democrat voters to vote early. He was finding new voters, right? That's the big thing. Are you, getting, are, are you just getting people that we already had baked into the formula to vote before Election Day, or are you expanding your base? And I think this was my youth helped me at the time because he was taking advantage of Facebook and social media in ways that he was identifying new voters. And one of the ways I was so accurate in 08 and, and 2012, when a lot of people thought Romney was going to win and I did not, um, is we, people were slow to adjust their models for the way that Obama was using modern social media to reach new voters. And, and then when you reach new voters through social and untraditional means, you can't take for granted they're going to show up three, four, five, six, or weeks later on election day. So if you've got early voting, man, you get them committed. It's a sale, really. You got a mark on the hook. You have got a prospect on the hook. You don't let them drive off the lot. You don't let them leave the store. All right. You, if, the odds of you of them coming back and being sold greatly diminish and deteriorate once they leave the premises. Right. So when you've got the fish baited on the hook, you want to close the sale right then and there. And so you you combine the Obama get out the vote operation's ability to use modern. Uh, techniques to expand their potential voting base with early voting laws. And it wasn't as simple as they were getting Democrats who were going to vote on election day to vote earlier. And so these weren't, you know, this, this didn't change the tabulation at all. They were getting a lot more people than they were getting credit for that probably weren't going to vote for them to vote and they were they were expanding their base. So when we saw remember we talked about this in the show in the 2016 election, the early voting numbers Hillary was blowing Trump away, right? In fact, she was actually further ahead of Trump in the early voting numbers than Obama was of Romney in 2012. Yep. And and so we wanted to sit back and see does she is she emulating his playbook or are we getting new voters? And what we saw is her early voting leads in every battleground state except one, Nevada. Where it looks like Trump might have helped to create maybe a permanent Hispanic majority against Republicans in that state. Um, But with the exception of Nevada... All the other battleground states where Hillary had these huge early voting leads, she lost them all. North Carolina, Ohio, Florida, she had massive early voting leads in those states, and she lost every one of them, okay? So uh, Republicans have always been hesitant about jumping on board with this because, again, they're more staunchy in about their traditions, and they just feel like going into the polling booth on election day is more of the civic experience. So when you see Republicans are doing that well, that is atypical of the Republican voting paradigm. The other thing that matters too, we had David Yepsen, our former colleague here yesterday. And one of the things he mentioned to us off the air that we didn't have a chance to discuss on the air is he thought one of the X factors in the selection might be the state of Florida. The panhandle's infrastructure has taken a massive hit uh, because of Mother Nature, and that's where so many of the Republican voters go. What's the old saying in Florida? The the further south you go, the further north you get, right? Yeah, the further south you go, the more liberal the state becomes. So a lot more of the conservative voters are in that panhandle area. And with the infrastructure, are we going to see polling places as as readily available as they would have been uh, given some of the, uh, the issues that, that the state of florida is trying to dig out from underneath and so to see a massive republican voter surge in that state which is a true real even though republicans do well in statewide elections typically in general elections it's a very close state i think over the last 10 presidential elections the state of florida has been separated by some obscene number like thirty thousand total votes or something so for republicans to be doing well in early voting there could be a, something to look for on Election Day if indeed, gentlemen, there's not as many polling places open there as typical. So those are the two things that when NBC News reported the story, they just reported you the news. They didn't really tell you, they didn't you know, do the math for you and connect the dots why that news is noteworthy. And I thought we needed to do that for the audience here, Todd.
1: Yeah, and I think we're going to have to continue doing it uh, day by day. As I've said before, whether we're talking about polling or just issues in general, the the voices inside my head that might say, "Uh, why don't you hold back on that a little bit, um, might not quite dovetail with reality. I I listen to those crazy voices and get them out in the public much quicker. As I've said before, I I, I think uh, that the the Republicans are narrowly going to hold the House, and everything you just said to me, Steve, uh, points in that uh, direction I-, I do think uh, and we still won't even understand it after this election but the electorate was fundamentally transformed um, in in 2016
2: tweet we just got from one of our listeners actually here in real time. Uh, who He says, I'm a voting Floridian. I submit another point for you guys to consider. There's an absurd amount of state constitutional amendments on this year's ballots. Those always drive up turnout, by the way. Uh, you know, you go back to the 4 election when everybody was shocked and the exit polling showed moral values was the number one issue. Well, that's because Karl Rove and the Republicans smartly made sure they had marriage amendments on the ballot in Florida and Ohio, the, the two key battleground states, because that was going to drive up their turnout. Okay? So he says, as a voting Floridian, I submit another point to consider there's an absurd amount of state constitution amendments on this year's ballot. Many counties have been encouraging absentee mail-in voting because of this. And that's another reason why absentee voting is higher than normal. And again, that's also why you want to find out what's going on on the ground when you're covering these elections. You have to keep in mind, we don't have national elections in America, guys. We don't have national referendums. We have a national slate of state and local elections. And so Even when you get a really good political analyst. And I think right now, some of the best, you know, I think Chris Steyerwalt at Fox News does an excellent job. And what you're looking for are people that aren't tribalists. All right, you're just looking for people. I think Cook Political Report does an excellent job. So uh, I think Sean Trendy, Tom Bevan at Real Clear Politics, and Tom Bevan will be on Fake News or Not a little bit later on. These are some of the sources that I look to for people that aren't interested in trying to engineer an outcome with their political analysis, but they're just doing the play by play. Doesn't mean they're right, but they're beginning from the right premise. Okay. And even when you get some of the best people like that, they sometimes will miss what's happening on the ground. And I say this now as a person that's transitioned from being a statewide media guy to a national media guy. I have to know enough about almost everything going on to have a broad conversation, which means I, I can't really get into the depth and details of, of, of everything happening in, in, in a local state anymore because that just isn't what the audience that I'm serving is looking for. So even a guy like a Chris at, 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 you know at a Fox News He's not going to probably know what the constitutional amendment slate is, in this, even in a key state like Florida, because he's not on the ground there, and he's got to know a little bit about every single state in the union. So that's that's something to keep in mind. That's, again, that old saying, you know, the Proverbs kind of knows what they're talking about. There's wisdom in a multitude of counsel. You cannot have enough sources, probably. Uh,
1: something a little bit more obvious in terms of your potential to analyze it uh, on the ground, and Aaron, I'm glad he pointed out the cultish behavior uh, by people at Trump rallies, but what do you think about the Trump rally for Ted Cruz in Texas and the fact that now Trump has promised to do 20 more of those between now and the election and how that impacts what you're talking about?
2: I want to see what the schedule is. We know one thing about Donald Trump. We know that he, he likes to declare victory, all right? So coming in and doing a rally for Ted Cruz when the polls have basically shown he has distanced himself in this race now that he was likely never going to lose anyway, um, I want to see, you know, I want to see Trump go to Indiana which is a staunch Republican state. One Republican has lost Indiana post-World War II, and it was Bob Dole in 96. All right, so it's a staunch Republican state. They have a Democratic uh, Senate, Senate uh, race there, which it, which is a vulnerable seat that the Republicans could win. They're slightly trailing right now on the RCP average. When I see Trump going to Indiana, Montana, um, West Virginia is a state where he won every precinct in the last election, but the way you look at Joe Manchin's numbers there, he just may be that state's version of our Charles Grassley, where it kind of, de- the, the partisan prevailing wins. He just has built a persona that he's immune to that. So I don't know how winnable of a race that is right now for Republicans. But I want to see, I, want to see, I don't think Trump can help Dean Heller in Nevada. Um, I think Trump's a big reason why Democrats have made gains in that state. And Dean Heller's a terrible senator anyway. But where I want to see Trump go are states where his persona and his popularity in that state could change the outcome. But right now, the Republican is slightly behind. Which means... He, his, the W and L goes in his column. You know what I'm saying? Where he's mm-hmm. risking sure. a loss. He's not risking a loss in in Texas. I don't even think he's risking a loss in Tennessee, for example. All right, with Marsha Blackburn, I, I want to see him go to Indiana, Montana. Um, those are states uh, where he had uh, nice wins, but the Republican is 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 obviously behind right now, and that will tell us a lot more. Is if Trump just loves the limelight and he's front running. Or if he really thinks there's a chance to switch some seats. Does that answer your question a little bit? A couple more things that were in Aaron's montage that I want us to address here. You know what? The millennial PTSD thing, that's an evergreen, man.
3: And I had PTSD after reading that survey.
2: (laughs) All I can say to that is teach your kids and grandkids Arabic. Because they're probably going to need it. I mean, if... We're handing over a defense of the country. You and I's generation is kind of too, getting too old to do that whole service thing now. So we're handing this over to his generation. I think we all know what the likely outcome of that is if you all can't handle a election that you lost. I mean, welcome invaders. Thank you for freeing us. I mean, you know, uh, they come in peace, I think is at least a side. Tell me I'm wrong, please. I really don't want to be the guy who thinks the next generation is our doom. And I think there's plenty of great people in your generation. I just think... It, there's a sizable chunk in your generation that just have, how, how do I say, no balls. No balls, no perspective. Tell me I'm wrong, Aaron.
3: No, I can't. Uh, I mean, both anecdotally, yeah, there are some good people. But I think overall, like you said, a sizable chunk, maybe maybe there's been a sizable chunk in every generation. It's just that the baseline is getting lower and lower for the amount of testosterone um, from for, for each generation. It's... It it is it's it's frustrating. I'm I'm not sure even at this point. David Yepsen was you know talking about this yesterday yesterday about a get great cataclysm bringing people together. I'm not even sure at this point that that would do that for this generation. Just because. Just because one so desensitized, and two, there's no. I don't think there's really any any wherewithal to actually. Trying to accomplish something, or trying to to bring people together yes. for a common go- yeah. good. There's no wherewithal. By what basis would we do that? And um, you know, uh, if the what, what what do we always say? If the foundation, um, yeah, if the foundations are shaken, what will the righteous do? Something along those lines. Right. Um, that's that's where we are right now. And I believe I believe it. Twenty five percent. I think that's probably even a low number.
2: We're we're dealing with a generation right now, where. We have the lowest birth rate in the history of this culture in your generation right now. We have the average 28-year-old male in America. It's more likely to be living at home with his parents than married with children. And the reason why those numbers matter and tell you more, I mean, every, we were going to be the end of things, right? Our baby boomer parents who blew up the culture and, you know, uh, uh, with the counterculture and and put us on the track we've been on for the last 40 years thought that we in Generation X were soft headed and we're going to be the ruin of things, right? I mean, this has happened. All throughout history, although sometimes there is, there usually is a terminal generation in every culture. That's why we have encyclopedias about formerly great cultures. There was a terminal generation that did that put the that, that you know essentially terminated the the time of, in, in which they lived and, and the supremacy or greatness of the culture from whence they came. So uh, it's true and it's not true. Every older generation thinks the next generation is going to be the ruin of things, but there is in every culture because there's been no. 7,000 year of recorded human history empire, right? There usually is a terminal generation. It's just not every generation like the older generation claims. But when you start looking at the putting off of adulthood, the systemic putting off of adulthood now, that tells you you're not capable of these levels of responsibility that it takes to maintain a self-governing free people. And you know, one of the most devastating articles I've read in my career, it was about 10 years ago in the Wall Street Journal, and they were doing an article about new business school grads who were literally crying in employee reviews because no one had ever told them before, you suck. You had to do better or you can't. This won't work. This isn't a satisfactory performance. And we're all going to lose our jobs here unless you hit your numbers. I mean, no one had ever told, no one had ever confronted them before with the knowledge that they may not be, uh, you know, good enough, smart enough, and doggone it people like you. And, these and these men, well males maybe is what I would call them, these males in these employee reviews they they, they they couldn't emotionally process this and so they were just they were breaking down and crying in front of the grown women bosses who were then looking at them like, I don't know what to do with this, okay? I've got more balls than you do. And so when 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 you have a generation systemically that has not been demanded to take on responsibility, and then furthermore has been permitted to keep putting it off and putting it off and putting it off and putting it off, putting it off then
3: they're in a situation where they're not prepared holistically to face a cataclysm. News, Todd. Yeah. Well, if if I could interject as yeah. well. I mean, look, look, look at what is going to happen, is starting to happen in China because of the the one child policy. Look at what's happening in Japan right now, full on. Because of uh, the difficulty in that culture, it seemingly of finding a partner. Those are just people who are actually, you know, culturally they they they, they are getting married and they do want to have kids. Those are just uh, systemic problems as far as uh, perpetuating the species goes, um, and and th- that is systemic. And they're heading for demographic mm-hmm. winters. In mm-hmm. Japan's case, they're pretty much already there. In our case, it's just because hey, you know. Um, You know, be fruitful and multiply. Meh. I'm gonna go. Just um, gonna go do my own thing, and um, you know, we'll see where we go from that. That is that is more scary. I think even than than the demographic winter, just because of policies or a cultural difference in other countries. Mm -hmm. Because at some point, the politicians, and we're already seeing this here, the politicians are going to be more and more apt as they see the tax dollars go down and down and down, more and more apt to let people from anywhere come in. And when you, when you get that, you get uh, a, much, uh, a much less, um, I don't know, it's, you see where I'm going here. Yeah. There is, there is no perpetuating an actual culture Right. when there is no culture.
1: Yeah. Everything you guys just said is why when I said I think the electorate has been fundamentally transformed. Well, not in all its uh, parts, but in the parts that I think matter and make this akin. This is America's Brexit election right here, the, these midterms. I think it's the, the exact same thing, a people, no matter what names you call them and you want to just say they want to live in a flatterer society and go back and live on their island. No, a lot of different kinds of people were just looking. And yes, some of them are older and many of them had voted for labor over there before or Democrat here, um, but just like this, I, I, this is a world turned upside down. I cannot be a part of it. I'm not having that go on my tombstone. I really think we have a Brexit election coming up.
2: The experts that Aaron talked about uh, anatomy doesn't determine gender. Um, that's an example of people that can't and won't share a culture with you. I mean, when when you start undoing fundamentals of existence that transcend our silly political tribalism and and trends and and who wins this next election t- so that they can they can bankrupt the treasury for to grease the palms of their K Street special yeah. interest. For th- this when we get to this level of point,
1: and the Democrat Party is actually yes. campaigning on it.
2: Yeah, when we get to this point, it's pr- these are people because here's the thing: when you decide existence is not what it is. This becomes a religious crusade for you. This is a worldview issue like we talked about last week on the show. And when you adopt this worldview, you will view it as your own conviction that you must spread this, evangelize this, proselytize this, and and you're essentially saying that those who disagree with me are denying this new existence and... This is your version of "Thou shall not suffer a witch to live." Yeah. This is you're dealing with existential level of angst here. And then when people decide that the, the the basic parameters of existence no longer apply, then if you do not if you don't choose to live in their existence, then as our buddy Eric Erickson says, you will be made to care. There isn't there isn't there isn't a fifty fifty sixty forty. This is what I was trying to say to Yepsen yesterday. When I just want to take my kid to a movie about uh, you know. Uh, turning the Bigfoot phenomenon on its ear and have a daddy-daughter date and carve up with some popcorn on a cold fall day. And I have to be lectured to essentially that uh, the Old Testament is fable and we should all just move on into the new global community. That comes from this level of religious fervor. Where they they just as you if you are a if you're a sincere person of orthodox religious belief, you cannot help. Jesus says you can't hire. You know no one takes a takes a lamp and hides hides it under a bushel. When you have this conversion transformation in your life, you can't help but see it seep out into every aspect of your existence. That's the same thing happening here, guys, but in reverse. All right, and there there just as Paul went to Ephesus. And even though he didn't intend to undo their way of life and their economy, the Ephesian hierarchy recognized, dude, our entire existence is based around the worship of Artemis Diana. It's our our, our economy. She's on our, she's on our coins. This guy, if we start following this Jesus guy, this is all going to get blown up. They're doing this in reverse. They're like, everybody's following this Jesus guy and these old st- laws on stones. We can't have that. So we've got, because what we want to introduce... Contradicts that, they will not permit a common ground because there isn't a common ground of how. Tell me, you're know, the old Ronald Reagan axiom: "Person is my eighty percent friend, isn't my twenty percent enemy." How can a baby in the womb be eighty percent alive? Todd, go. I got nothing. I'm sorry, uh, Aaron. How can you be 80 percent female? Go. I got nothing. Okay you see where I'm going with this? I do. These are, these, we're, this is not Reagan and Tip O'Neill arguing about how much the Pentagon should get to build MX missiles to point at Moscow, okay? We're, we, are, we are past the... We're, we're, dude, we're... Hey, there's the Rubicon. We're way gone, guys. Way gone here, man. Way past the Rubicon. It's like, Shane, come back. I mean, we're way out of here, all right? We are at literally the point of, I don't know that two plus two is four. And when you're at that point of 2 plus... There, there, there is no moderation. 2 plus 2 equals 4 or it doesn't. It doesn't equals 3.25, 3.95. Well, you know what? I think it's 5. You think it's 4. How about we just settle at 3.8? But what if you they put lipstick on with, it? They are messing with... They're messing... What's that? What if you put lipstick on it? Then <laughs> is it okay? They're messing with the constants. You can find gray matter in, in the variables. They're messing with the constants. And when you mess with the constants... Those become either-or existential propositions. There's not an area for negotiation about, well, you know what? Let's just abort the left arm because, I mean, you'll still have the rest of your appendages and we'll still call you. No, they're denying the elements of existence. And when we get there, then that does become, as, as Pink Floyd once sang, guys, that becomes us. Or them. I'm gonna change the song lyric a little bit. There's no there's no us and them then. And and make no mistake, these people know this. They know this. And and they have no intention of sharing a culture with you. None whatsoever. Which
1: is why with the um migrants coming up uh, towards the border, I had a conversation yesterday. Like, uh, it, to the degree that this is orchestrated on uh, some level uh, for political machinations, the question came out, well, doesn't, don't they see that this is the reason Trump became popular in the first place? Why would they m- bring something to life that would help Trump— but it's making your entire point. This is their religion. They, yes. they don't think tactically like that. They think primarily in terms of their own spirituality. And this is it, which is why I always say they can't help themselves. Not because I believe they're crazy, which I do, but because they're true believers, Steve.
2: Yes, that's where the craziness comes from. Yes. It's it's, and it's and the old Reagan line. It's It's not that so many of our democratic friends are dumb. It's just that many of the things they believe aren't true. That's what you're dealing with. This progressivism is a rival religion. It is the rival religion of this age. It is here to undo and replace and deconstruct the existing religion. And what would be the existing religion? Well, you know, what's the old Abraham Lincoln observation? America's civil religion is the belief in the founding documents and the Ten Commandments and 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 on, and that's one area that's the first phase is undo America's civil religion but then undo whatever judeo-christian parameters were established that gave birth to that American civil religion that's phase 2 of the operation that's what you're watching right now they've already shredded the constitution it's largely a dead letter and now they're moving on to the fundamentals <laughs> All right, back here on the Steve Day Show, here live on The Blaze On Demand at CRTV. Steve at stevedace.com is the email address. You can like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter, at Steve Day Show. Let's get to some Pop Culture Tuesday, gentlemen. It's our weekly look at the intersection between culture and conservatism. And we did one of these lists uh, about uh, current ne- Netflix shows uh, a little while ago. And uh, one of our listeners, Tony, Tony Latori said, hey, I'd like to see you guys do a similar list of horror films, best horror films, from a conservative perspective. All right, so I've got a top five list here in honor of uh, Halloween of what uh, I, I think are the best five horror films I've ever seen that have interesting subtext to them. Now, right away, like the whole slasher genre and all that kind of stuff, although it is kind of funny if you go back to um, the great rant from uh, Scream, which talks about the moral code in slasher films, and, and that's right on the money. They're, well, the slasher films that they played, they had in the 70s and 80s and into the 90s had that moral code. I don't know if the new ones do. I, I did get out to see. I read it wasn't going to be like a, what we call Gorn, where it's just a pornography of gore. So I did go out and see the new Halloween movie, this weekend, I was bored. I, it, it bored me. I mean, it, it, it should have had an excellent setup, especially Jamie Lee Curtis as the Second Amendment loving grandma who is armed to the teeth to defend herself against her serial killer brother, you know? But it just seemed like they had a really good elevator pitch for the movie, but they didn't execute any of it. Like, they didn't write it out good. You know what I'm saying? It just, everything seemed to be kind of rushed, and there were plenty of times I was, I was bored. I don't, do you think I'm, is that the intentional reaction? Do you think, no, boredom of the people who made that? Were they trying to bore me? I don't think that's Did the they r- response. Did they make the money they wanted? They wanted well, perhaps? yeah, they made 80 million dollars over the weekend for a movie that I'm sure probably only t- cost them 10, 20 million to make. So, yeah,
1: I think you're bearing the lead on this whole thing for our new viewers, though. I mean, there's a only Nixon could go to China aspect of the conservatives within America who could do this. You got to tell them why this genre appeal. You're not just doing this abstractly. No, this Halloween. I, uh, no. You got
2: to tell people why this is your jam. Well, when, be, before I got converted, I grew up, I was, I was heavily interested into the occult. My grandmother was a horror movie, um, uh, maestro and, um, she babysat me a lot growing up. Uh, and we watched virtually everything, you can imagine together um now this is a story yeah so and then after i got converted um i found the genre interesting from when when the culture uses this as a vehicle to touch on true spiritual themes then i'm interested and you're going to see that's a that's that's the reoccurring theme in the list i'm about to share so like the new stuff the hostels and and um what's the guy, the movies where the jigsaw, yeah, I don't wa- I hate it. I don't watch it. I, that stuff. I, I can't, I, I there's, n- there's no chewing the meat and, and spitting out the bones there to me. That's just like all, all bones. You know what I'm saying? There, there's nothing there that gives you something uh, for us as conservatives to say, Hey, the culture's gathering around the city gate to use a biblical analogy. And they're telling tales, existential tales, do you think we might want to listen in to see what wavelength they're on right now, to see what the zeitgeist of the culture is, right? Yeah. And and that's what I'm interested in is when the genre goes there. And okay? it seems
1: to be increasingly going more there than many of the
2: movies you mentioned. And one of the movies that makes my list is these are, is a new uh, franchise of films that James Wan created, who created the Saw movies, by the way. And his next movie is Aquaman that comes out here in uh, in a couple of months. But James Wan has created an, a, a horror franchise with overtly Christian themes. I mean, they're not even subtle. That Christianity is presented as the clear antidote to the evil malevolence that is terrorizing families. All right? And that's The Conjuring franchise, and we'll talk about that in a minute. All right, So here's the list in honor of Tony's request. Here's the list I came up with. Now, a couple of movies that were out this year earlier didn't make my list. But I, and I, sometimes we use that word a lot, and I'm guilty of it too. I think they're legitimately great movies. I'd highly recommend. One is um, A Quiet Place, which is, if you've got kids, I would say 10 or older, the whole family probably could sit through this. It's more of an intense suspense thriller than pure horror, horror although it's been placed in that genre. It's exceedingly well done. Absolutely. The other is Hereditary. And Hereditary is not for kids on any level whatsoever. And uh, it's expertly made. And uh, one of the things that's fascinating about the two films is both movies are about how families confront a malevolent force. And in one case, you have a strong family unit with defined roles, uh, Papa Bear, Mama Bear, and and that, that is able to sustain this family to stand up to the malevolence that they're up against in a quiet place. In hereditary, the family is in dysfunction and disarray and is all over the place, and the father is passive and uh, hasn't really done his job in the home for many, many years, Uh, and the mom is very spiritually confused, and and that means now the children are, the daughters become sort of socially awkward, and the son is experimenting with drugs because they're taking their cue from parents who aren't establishing a great foundation in the home. And so when the evil shows up in that home, it, that the home collapses and it actually ends up consuming the family to the point that this family goes from trying clumsily without any of the true weapons of warfare. They need to confront the entity to becoming the the vessel for it because the family is just a no is not strong enough to stand up to the evil. Unlike what you see in a quiet place. And then at the very end of hereditary, I won't spoil it for you. It's, it's, it's funny. The the antidote to the evil is never really talked about throughout the entire film until the very end. And it is the evil. It's the evil that speaks of of its enemy. The evil does it. The evil says we're here to oppose this openly. That's actually the last... Have you gotten to the end of the movie yet, Aaron? I did, Okay. Yeah. Isn't and that the last line of dialogue in the movie,
3: right? We reject the Trinity. Yes, that's yeah. the
2: last line of dialogue in the movie, and then the credits roll. All right. So you want to talk about a nefarious plot being kind of through the looking glass, history through hell's perspective? This movie teaches why, teaches teaches biblical truth and and the need and the necessity for strong families from... The other side of the looking glass, meaning hell comes along and sees this family can't. Uh, they're 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 the wounded antelope in the Serengeti, and the and hell is the lion. Hell's like, why chase a herd of antelope? We got this one just right here, plump and ready to be pruned and picked. And that's what's fascinating about hereditary. Okay. Man, did- we're
1: talking about horror movies, but what you just said hits so close to home in terms of our own culture and the horror movie it's becoming right there. I mean, preach, brother, preach.
2: We're a guy like Michael Avenetti, who's an obvious froster. I don't even just mean like somebody we disagree with. Like on a human level is a fraud. He's His, his he's $5 million eviction notice. And all of our, what do you like to say, journalism is magical and not at all broken? It's actually been the LA Times and the Daily Beast that have destroyed this guy. Every once in a while, it's- and and what that goes to show you is, is entities like CNN aren't even just biased; they're practicing journalistic malfeasance now. Like they don't even they don't even care who they get into bed with now. Like like there is there is um, being a part of hookup culture. To get your freak on. And then there is, I'm, I'm downtown trolling the heroin addict prostitution set. You know what I'm saying? Yes. Where I'm just, I'm, I'm not, I, I, I even went past the red light district and I am now just in the slums. That's what CNN is doing with Michael Evan and all the other networks that gave him all that time. That's what they were doing. The guy is the, is the legal equivalent of a slum lord. And without any background check on him, where he came from at all, simply because he had the siren song of Trump sucks, they put him on national TV every freaking day for months. And now you have other liberal media outlets that are like, you know, we're totally into the liberal bias, but we're kind of a little more discriminating about who we go to bed with around here, you know, because, you know, man who lie down with dog, wake up with flea, right? Know what I'm saying? And, you know, general warts to us isn't a thing. So we're going to kind of, you know, maybe screen a little bit who we're getting into bed with here to, to spew our propaganda forth. And they're the ones checking into Evan Eddy, which makes the MSNBCs and CNNs of the world that just put this guy on every one of their shows, block programming for months, just makes them look like total trash.
1: Doesn't and it? It does. I love how I can sidetrack you. That was beautiful. But you better be- get back to your movies here, brother.
2: But, but, this, but I, that's, that has been a real-life horror know, movie to I'm watch this. I it up.
1: I agree. There's entirely. no doubt about it. It might
2: be the best horror movie of the year. The emergence <laughs> yeah. of Michael Avenetti from whatever moss, pus-infected rock he was inhabiting prior to, like, say, February to, to, to pollute and infest our television screens and mines for the last eight months. Probably the best horror movie of the year. So that was actually a good segue. All right, so here's my list. I'm going to start from the bottom. Number five, I have Paranormal Activity, the very first movie.
1: What year are we talking?
2: Uh, these are just things, that, you know, Paranormal Activity came out 06. Yeah, I was. mean, it seems older, yeah. yeah. Um, what I liked about this movie is Amy and I went and saw it on opening night. And, you know, the found footage genre has kind of been played out. But what was fascinating about this movie is, and I wrote a column, and I can't remember who I wrote it for at the time. What's fascinating about this movie is, is this young couple comes up against a demonic entity. They go to the demonology department at the university. They go to each of their parents. They, they search, the, new, they search you know, the media online. They, they literally go to academia, every source, family, every source you could imagine for help and guidance on how to f- push back and fight back against this demonic entity. Except for one. Can you guess the one they never go to? Can you guys guess? Church? Yeah, church. The church. In fact, it's not even like like that ad they run during the movies right now, and I love that commercial. If you're in a horror movie, you make bad decisions. It's what you do, right? Did, right? <laughs> yeah. Let's jump in the running car. Are you crazy? Head for the chainsaws, right? It's not even like they're like like a priest comes walking by or like a, you know, uh, the, the local evangelistic family knocks on the door and they're like, you guys are, cr- we don't exist. Like, it's not even like they just make a bad decision and, and we're parodied. It's like this is a universe where, where, where our belief system doesn't exist in this multiverse. So it's Washington, D.C. <laughs>
1: back to true life horror movies again
2: (laughs) yes truth is always stranger than fiction bill shakespeare yes but that's to me what i find so fascinating about this culturally is is the culture devolving to, and this has become a huge franchise of movies they've made like five of these now this one made 200 million dollars domestic it was a massive hit and we've now gone from progressivism denying that that evil is an objective force, not just something we subjectively do when we're not educated or discriminated against. But we've gone now where they are admitting evil is an objective reality in the universe. And they're saying, boy, that really sucks that I wish we had something we could do about it. But we don't. So at the end of the movie, everybody dies. That, Steve, Steve, when you use the term nihilism, Steve, that's, a, that's one of your big words. We don't understand. What do you mean? That, what I just told you, that is nihilism. Well, we're now going to admit the world is ugly, but there is nothing to alter it, nothing to make it better, nothing it's to actually, change
1: it. It's actually admitting there there really is no just eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. It's like life is going to be a brutal hellscape and then tomorrow yes. we die. yeah.
2: Yeah. That so stunned me when I saw the film originally that I ended up writing a column for it. It might have been for the Washington Times or somebody that I was working for at the time, but- that's a statement your culture's making to you right there. Those of us that have a theistic worldview, when they, when they admit, when, when, when they understand that the family is a place to go to for support, um, they're, they're, they're admitting that evil, this wasn't the psychiatry department, they went to the demonology department of academia. And the professor at the university comes to their home to say, this is an evil demon that has lived since before humankind. They're admitting that Evil is an objective existence in reality. We want them to do that, right? They're admitting they need family. We want them to do that, right? That family is good, right? And then they're just kind of like, "Why? if only there was something else out there that might help us. But there's not. So everybody dies at the end. That, if that ain't a shot across the, if that, if that ain't the shot across the bow of the church, like were you at church? Then guys, I don't, I don't know what it is. That's why it makes my list, Okay. Number four on my list. It, it, it does ex- everything, the, everything that paranormal activity does, and then it provides the antidote. And that is The Conjuring, uh, the very first one. The second one's pretty good too, but the first one is a masterpiece. Um, and, and here you have an attempt. In, in, in many respects, the, the Conjuring is what happens when hell picks on the wrong family like it picks on the right one in hereditary. In the conjuring it picks on the wrong family. And this is a, this is a family that's like all right um we're going to we're we're calling uh we're calling daddy in here on this one. All right? Uh, to open a can. And what I love about this film is the theology is very clear, the spirituality is very clear, heaven and hell are made very clear um and you know, if, I, if, I, if you were to see the film, not know who any of the directors are, not look up any of the cast on IMDb or anything, if I, and I think I could probably sell most people that this was a film made by Christian filmmakers for a PG-13 audience looking to do a good horror film. Do you agree with me on that?
1: Based on everything you've said, yeah, oh, you, think... you still
2: haven't seen it yet. No, I've never seen. How did it? I not know you haven't seen this yet?
1: Because I—that's why I, I don't watch these movies. But I clearly have okay. to see this.
3: You one. need. You need have, Aaron, have you seen this one yet? I made it about ten minutes and uh, fell asleep. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> that, thats his Rudy admission of horror movies, I guess. <laughs> and I don't know. I don't know our Blaze audience is prepared to hear the Rudy thing, so I digress.
3: I, st- I still haven't seen Rudy yet. I'm sorry. I mean, I'll just- <laughs> I'm not even your father, and I feel like I
2: have failed you in some respects. <laughs> I haven't seen Rudy.
3: Our, our, our producer in our ear just... They, I, he heard can- that. I heard that. <laughs> he, you he can't say, believe it either. I
2: know. Because everybody... I don't have any clue... How many people with penises are listening and watching right now? But I can promise you every last one of them, when they heard Aaron say, I've never seen Rudy all winced yeah. no, or shuddered every calling, last one. They're calling for the exorcist on that. Yes. One. Like, I- like Steve, tell us more about this conjuring <laughs> film. And are you sure it's not a documentary? Sure. This wasn't reality television night, right? Not a movie. No, it is a fictional story. It's about, uh, um, Oh the Warrens I can't remember their name but they were a very famous couple catholic couple in the 70s and 80s and you know they were involved in the Amityville case I mean these are like these were people like sanctioned by the, the diocese they were like real life demon hunters and not like the fake ghost hunters with their infrared cameras at Irish castles on your stupid reality TV shows that air now I mean these guys were like really called in like the the diocese and the church would like really call them in back in the day. I mean this was this is like real the power of Christ compels you casting out demons and using scripture wielding it as a sword of truth kind of spiritual warfare. And that and it is expertly depicted by James Wan in the first conjuring movie. I think it's I think it is um the best horror film that that has been made from the vantage point of where we're coming from as a belief system, I think it's the best horror film that mainstream Hollywood has made uh, in decades, is my opinion. I, I can't believe you haven't seen it.
1: I will. Because I, I don't want to be harassed like Aaron on Rudy, so now I vow to No, no. It. You
2: know, this is not... This isn't a Rudy thing. Not Not having seen Rudy is a transcendent Dude, code vibe. Yeah, I'm,
1: which I'm terrified of that level of marginalization. Yes, now, so I'm uh, yes, going to run in the opposite no, direction.
2: No, uh, this is just me. I'm yeah, I'm sitting here with my my Catholic editor over here, and I'm telling you, this movie is like it's on the list. Yeah, this is this is like a a, a Catholic Church recruitment yeah. film. My wife just you should won't see watch this, it, so
1: I got to find the carve out the time on my own. But, All right, uh, so I, I,
2: will. I only made it to two movies on my list. I've got three more. We'll get to those after the break as we continue Pop Culture Tuesday. Fake news are not coming your way, too, with Hour 2. Next. All right, we are back with our two of the Steve Day Show here live on The Blaze, on demand at CRTV. That would be me. Todd and Aaron are here as well. If you are listening to our podcast today on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, thank you very much on your podcast platform of choice. If you could do us a favor, leave us one of those five-star reviews if you like what we do. If you don't, maybe just keep that to yourself. But if you do like what we do here, those five-star reviews, the more they pile up, the more people see that and they hop on. Now, same thing if you could just do a little gesture like clicking that subscribe button. If you haven't done so already, that helps immensely as well. Thank you to all of you that have done both of those things for us already. So coming up a little bit later on in this hour, some fake news or not will return. Let's continue with Pop Culture Tuesday. Tony Latori, one of our listeners, asked us to do, from a conservative perspective, top five horror movies in honor of Halloween. So I've gotten through two. Because Todd sidetracked me by pointing out Michael Evanetti is the number one horror film of the year. And he's exactly correct about that. Uh, Paranormal Activity, the first one I have at number five. The Conjuring, I have at number four. All right, now we're going to get a little more old school, all right, with the final three. I'm going to go with The Shining, number three.
3: That is interesting.
2: All right. Is, 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 has, am I the only one here that has
3: seen the movie? No, I've seen it I've seen times. The Shining. Yes.
2: Yeah. You now... Did you see the millennial, right? He's been over there. Yeah, whatever. All right, it wins our break. I haven't seen Rudy.
3: I'm All just...
2: Right. I'm cur- I said The Shining. He clicked. Oh, well, that, I'm in. Yeah, so I, I, tell me why. I,
3: well, I'm really curious about... Because when I first saw this, I, or saw this topic, I was like, oh, it's just going to be uh, the best horror movies, not what they have to say about necessarily conservatism. So I'm interested to hear what you think The Shining has to say about conservatism because I just thought it was nihilistic. Good story, but nihilistic.
2: What did you think of The Shining before I answer that question?
1: Well, I don't remember viewing it through any grand uh, conservative uh, paradigm, and it's been a while uh, since I've seen it, but it, it certainly says a lot about uh, a family on its own against uh, the forces of— uh, well, you already alluded to that mm-hmm. in one movie, so I'm, it, it certainly says that— what happens with male? The male goes nuts or is AWOL.
2: Yeah, you have to understand. When I first saw this movie, you know, this movie came out what 1978. Yep. So I was five. I saw it a couple of years after it came out uh, when my grandmother was watching me on a bowling night. So way, uh, way too young to have seen this film. And um, my our, our oldest, who is a, is going to turn 18 in a couple of months. You know, she's heard me and her mom reference this movie, and she's seen so many references to it in other pop culture venues. Since she's been alive, she's been really anxious to see it. I wouldn't let her see it until she turns 17. Um, Aaron is correct. The film is nihilistic. It is very much like The Shining, or very much like Hereditary. As you pointed out, Todd, this is a family that has no chance up against uh, what it, the entity that it's up against there at the Overlook Hotel, and the reason why this film is stuck in my craw all these years is because of the way I was raised. Um, I saw a lot of my dad in Jack Torrance, where my dad in a given day, Dave Dace was just as likely to defend you to the Gills as he was to just completely throw you under the bus, and um. That, that, is, that really hit home to me growing up. And then the rest of the film, you know, it's funny. Stephen King hates the movie. Hates it. Even though it is considered in terms of the quality of the filmmaking the best adaptation of one of his books that's ever been done. But King is adamant that it's not... That, that's Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. That's not my book. And even a, a few years ago, well, actually, it's been almost 20 years now, in the 90s, he did a uh, miniseries. A two-part miniseries with Steven Weber from Wings, played Jack Torrance, uh, and Tracy Lords, the former porn star, was the mom. And this is this is actually really well done too. But it's it is it is line by line an adaptation of the book, and um, King thought Kubrick took way too many liberties with the story, and some of the crazy stuff like what's going on in the one hotel room with the the guy and the woman dressed up in the rabbit costume, and you know. Basically, King, King Kubrick took Stephen King's novel and went all Clockwork Orange with it. So there's just some like crazy random stuff uh, in the movie. Um, but the way Nicholson's portrayal, uh, I, I would put it up with some of with if you were to name the best, the best acting ever in a horror film, Give me three that you can think of off the top of your head better than that.
1: Oh, I can't. I won't.
2: I don't, I don't know that you can name one. No. And I, I think, you know, the way I was raised and the uncertainty that Danny has about, is this the day my dad's going to protect me or not? That movie just stuck in my craw. And, and running riding around in his little big wheel, that was me, man, at that age. You know? And wow. kind of playing on your own in order to get away from an uncertain family situation, and a mom, uh, you know, a chain-smoking mom who's just totally overmatched by the overbearing stepdad. You know, one of the reasons we moved around a lot is because my dad always was looking for a job, and he was really good at getting jobs, wasn't always great at keeping them. You know, it's the old line from when I once interviewed Harley Race, the great professional wrestler in my sports talk radio days, and he was bragging to me about being a former eight-time world champion. And I said to him, Well, doesn't that mean you lost it then seven times? And he hung up and didn't like that. Um, because yeah, I mean, if you've won it that many times, that's great, but you had to keep losing it, right? Would you rather be Rocky Marciano, an undefeated, retired one time world champion, or a five time world champion? What would you rather be? I think Marciano. Yeah, I'd rather walk away with scoreboard all time. No one beat me. No one no one no one could hold my jock strap, as Larry Holmes once famously said, right? I'd rather have that, you know? And so, um and that was Jack Torrance and similar Jack Torrance with the drinking. Dave would do that. I know. And I know every time I bring this up, every marijuana, you know, uh, uh, activist in our audience will email me. It, 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 it soothes. I, I can only tell you what I saw when I was raised. All right. I, I never recall Dave being a, a, a D bag for having one too many beers. And some, I, I know, a lot, I, I was a drunk for as in college. I was around a lot of angry drunks. But when Dave would get stoned and high, and he was a marijuana dealer when I was a kid. So, you know, that's why I know what nickel and dime bags and all that lingo means. Um, he was terrible to be around, awful. And similar to how the drinking transforms Danny's dad, Jack, into a totally different person, the pot would transform Dave into a totally different person. And I, I had so many, just so many parallels. Shelly Duvall's bone skin, rail thin chain smoking mom trying to protect her kid, but she is no match for the dad. She, I mean, my mom even had that physique when I was a kid. All right. My mom was the rail thin chain smoking mom trying to, you know, how do, how do we hold this all and keep it together? And so all of those parallels reminded me so much as a kid, when I first saw the movie and stuck with me throughout the course of the, of all those years. Hey,
1: I started our audience. I, I, you and I have discussed a lot of things off. I, I had we've never discussed this movie yeah. so I was not setting you up with that and secondly sure. to the point you're making when you saw that at that age just my my now 11 she was 10 at the time we rented Ready Player One mm-hmm. and they do a little homage to yep. both Psycho and The Shining yep. and my third daughter Charlie uh, she's the most sensitive she is very sensitive to violence so it's mostly Steve that's cartoonish kind of really King Kong but when that scene came on in the elevator and the blood yeah my daughter turned to me and said like dead serious daddy what is happening yeah. daddy stop this and it, it points if you saw this and whatever you were less you were I was younger seven or eight years old Good the first time grief. i saw the movie
2: yeah and i remember my mom going to see the movie with my dad when i was a kid one night when my grandmother was babysitting me and a great irony is do you guys Remember um, the miniseries, Salem's... Well, Aaron won't remember. Do you remember the Salem's Lot miniseries in the 70s? I didn't watch it, but I remember. And I remember one night, my grandmother and I are watching it, and it's the scene where the vampire comes up through the floorboards in the kitchen, which scared the living crap out of me. My grandmother was watching me as we're watching the Salem's Lot miniseries. My parents went to go see The Shining at the theater. And I remember... There were, two, there were three movies my mom went and saw, when, horror movies she went and saw when I was little, where she came back and was had nightmares for days after. The three movies were the first Halloween. The second one was The Shining, and, and probably because some of some of the parallels I'm discussing. The third was When a Stranger Calls, because the, 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 chi, the children's name in the movie, I think, are Stephen and Scott, which are me and my brother's oh, names. wow. And the husband's name is David. That's the movie where the guy calls. Have you have you checked the children? All right, the calls are coming from inside the house. I remember my mom having nightmares for days after seeing those three movies. So, what did you think of The Shining, Aaron?
3: Um, I thought. I, I think I first saw it uh, late high school, early in college, and uh, it, it is it is the the same type of trope. Uh, families confronted with an evil force, and they turn to the wrong source. Mm-hmm. And in the case of um, the Jack Torrance's character, you mentioned that's alcohol. It's basically anything other than trying to find uh, a solution for his own uh, psychosis, basically his own demons, right? His own demons, and uh, the effect that that has on everyone, not just in his family, um, but. You know, the I can't remember the, the the black guy's name who comes in. The, the Scatman Carruthers yes, place. Yeah. yeah, who has the gift. Yeah. 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 And so it is it, it is nihilistic at the end, but it paints a, a pretty sordid picture about what your own demons and how they affect other other people.
2: Yeah. I mean I, I looked all my childhood for ways to get out of the house. So, you know, I had <clears throat> I had a big I had the green, big green machine, I had the big wheel, I had the Batmobiles, the old things you used to pedal. Remember those in the seventies? Oh yeah. I, had I was gone all the, as much as, as as I was permitted to not be in the house. I'd be gone, and then when I got older, I always put my my room in the basement, so I was literally in another home. Uh, that that scene and and I can only imagine where Dennis Quaid is, is is wailing on the mom, and then comes upstairs to pick on the son, and he hurry, hurries up. Bart hurries up and puts his headphones on and to listen to music and pretend like he didn't know what was going on. That literally, that cut me deep, Shrek. That, that scene is right out of my childhood. That's what I used to do. Is I used to put my headphones on and listen to music and stuff when I could hear what was going on upstairs because I knew he'd eventually make his way downstairs. And in my mind's eye, sometimes it would be like Jack Torrance going through the maze, you know, Danny, you know, and I'd, I'd hear him coming down the stairs and I'd put my headphones on and act like I was listening to music so that, you know, he would literally, I, I hate to use this analogy, but he would literally pass over my bedroom door if he, if he thought that I was not aware of what had what had been going on upstairs. So number two is the movie on my list is, is what most people would consider the greatest horror film of all time, and that's The Exorcist. And I was teasing Todd during the break that The Conjuring is like an army recruiter film for the Catholic Church. The Exorcist literally was. If you go back and look at it, um, enrollment's probably not a good word. I just, how about it? is attendance okay? All I know is, Attendance at Catholic Churches skyrocketed. Yep. This is correct. This is fa- true fact, guys. Not alternative fact, true fact. Attendance at Catholic Churches skyrocketed nationwide after this movie aired. Um, it is probably the first... You know, we had movies like um, Black, Crit, Black Sunday and other films that, you know, were honest about where evil is and where it originates or what evil is and where it originates, but but because of the the moral standards that were demanded of cinema in that era, couldn't necessarily be honest visually about how it may present itself. And The Exorcist, uh, in a post-counterculture era in the early 70s, does so in a way that, um, uh, by our standards today, when you go back and watch it, you're like, I've seen... You use the term trope, Aaron. I've seen all these tropes before, but you have to look at it from the perspective of somebody who went and saw this movie in 1973, and they had never ever been confronted with anything as as visceral. This was in many respects, this is the this is the passion of horror films, in that Gibson gave you just a taste of the reality of the horror yeah. of a scourging and-, and a crucifixion. And this film gives you the first real. Assault of all four dimensions of your senses of just the foul stench that hell is. And it and blew is audiences it, away.
3: Is it more, and maybe this is a, a moot question since we're talking about horror here, which is psychological and not just gore, uh, or gorn, as you call it. Um, is it I, I'm pretty sure I've seen this before, but all of the details are are running together. Is it more of a psychological scare, or is it... Kind of the, um, the, the idea that, you know, this is, this is hell presenting itself plus the visual element. Is that what's... What, I think what's, it's all of the above. All of the above. Yeah. What would... Here's a question then. What would scare most of our culture like that did that culture at that time? Well, I
2: look at, you know, I go back to the movie that was first on my list, Paranormal Activity, was $200 million. Even though found footage movies since the Blair Witch Project had kind of become a played out genre. But I think the I think in our day and age the the, the visceral acknowledgement that evil exists and there's no antidote to it. I think paranormal activity kind of touched in touched on that. The the reason why attendance at Catholic churches skyrocketed after The Exorcist is because The Exorcist portrayed. I mean the young girl that uh, that uh, uh, Linda Blair plays, Reagan. You know, and and the the contamination and the invasion of 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 a symbol of innocence, of a virginal young teenage girl, um, uh, and the idea that the church is the it has the antidote to what is you know destroying this girl and her family. That's what drove audiences uh, to the church. It's that the movie the movie provided the other half of the equation that a lot of today's horror films like Paranormal Activity and others don't. And the Conjuring is doing that now, and I think that's kind of the secret of the of the Conjuring success is it's it's old fashioned good versus evil under the banner of horror, and that's really what The Exorcist was at the time.
1: Well, and another reason it's uh, compelling and hit its mark to the point that Aaron says is, that, and you probably know more than this because I, but it's like The Passion. It's also at the very least it's loosely based on a true story, yes, an yeah. actual exorcism.
2: Yeah, there's a great documentary on Netflix right now about. One of the priests that was involved in this original case, and uh, was an officially sanctioned exorcist for the church for many many years, and I'm trying to remember because I think I texted you the name of it, um, but it's on Netflix right now, and I'll, I'll look it up later and, and try to remind the audience what it's uh, what it's titled. The, the 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 original book by William Peter Blatty that you're talking about, and uh, Bill Friedkin, who's a devout Catholic who did the who directed the film, based it on. The document. If you think the movie's scary, when they had the uh, 25th anniversary of the movie in 1998, they put out a 25th anniversary special edition DVD, and Amy and I got it with the document, the documentary. That documentary, dude, about what went on, what went on. You know, you guys have heard the story about what happened to several members of the cast of Poltergeist. All right, and just the calamities that befell several people involved in that production. I haven't. Um, What went on? I was was at a meeting of conservative leaders a couple years ago, and the guy who co-produced The Passion with Mel Gibson gave gave one of the presentations, and he talked about all the problems they had, mysterious illnesses, um, just crazy distractions and problems making that film, and he was convinced it was spiritual warfare. And when you watch this making-of documentary, of what was going on on the set, what happened to several people involved with the cast and the crew in in the years following, and uh, it uh, that documentary freaked me out, man. It made the hair in the back of my neck stand up, you know. And I think it's even, I think it's far scarier than even the movie is.
1: You're describing. We have talked about this before. What I think, I really truly think, what happened on some level to Heath Ledger, playing the Joker. He admits that he yeah. he tried to when you dance with the his, devil, the yeah, devil don't yeah, change; no, it changes it you, right? actually happened, man. Yeah.
2: It's hard to stare into the mouth of madness for too long before you, you see your own reflection. I, I had this when I wrote a nefarious We plot. talked about this. It took me almost a year to write that book. And you guys know I'm, I don't do a lot of things fast, like run, but I can write pretty fast. Yeah. That book, I, I it took me a year to write it because I needed to like walk away from this demonic character for weeks or months on end because I found that if I didn't, I, I fit into issue. Sh- people were like, when I tell people that, they were like, um, well— because it was so disturbing. I'm like, yeah, but not for the reason you think. I wanted to slip into his shoes. I liked it. And that's the part that bothered me. Is I was attracted to this. That's why I had to walk away. If, if, if it was very clear that this was a foul thing, well, I have no problem standing up to that. I was raised by a bully. I've stood up to bullies my entire life. What bothered me about the character is how much... I started kind of relating to him and resonating. In fact, your predecessor, Rebecca, Aaron, when I, when I let her read the very first draft of the book, her response was, this is exceedingly well-written, but you didn't create another character. You just essentially created an alter ego of you. That's so Rebecca. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and But when I went back and I read it, and I'm like, first of all, I don't remember writing some of this stuff. And secondly, yeah, she's right. There's too, there's too much of Steve Dace as an antihero and um the devil you know brother yeah and and i i i liked him too much at times and i, I think yeah you know are, you, we laugh at the joker during parts of the movie right mm-hmm. yeah you start laughing until you get to the end of the plot you realize the joke's been on you the entire time you know what i'm saying and i think that that probably is what to, what helped uh, or caused uh, heath ledger to succumb to the darkness there all right number one on my list This movie, a lot of people think our modern movie promotion branding started with George Lucas and Star Wars, and that is not true. Uh, A lot of the filming of Star Wars was taking place uh, during the uh, winter, spring, and summer months of 1976. And during the course of that year, Warner Brothers, or no, it was actually 20th Century Fox, the exact same uh, uh, studio, thought they had made, they they were looking for the next exorcist. And they thought they had made a movie that might even be better. And in order to deviate that they're not a knockoff on the exorcist, because when the exorcist became popular, everybody wanted to make a demonic possession movie. And there's all kinds of these in the in the early to mid seventies that are total schlock and terrible, all right, imitators that are cheap. And so they began doing something that had never really been done before. They did 6 months of advance promotion of this film in order to promote it and differentiate it from The Exorcist. Most people in those days found out about a new movie when they saw the trailer. Like right now you're I mean you folks have been waiting were waiting for Avengers Infinity War 3 years ago. That's not how this worked back in the 70s. You often found out about a movie when you saw the trailer and it was like coming soon. And, and coming soon was not usually next year guys. It was like you saw the trailer in October and the movies come out in Christmas. That's kind of what happened back then. And what, what 20th century Fox did is they had this creepy little kid who played the main character and they dressed him up all in black and they created standups ups and, in bookstores and movie houses all over the country for months before the movie came out, they had this creepy little kid, and the stand-up simply said, the world ends 6 because the movie came out June 6th, 1976. And they had an A-list actor who was considered one of the great actors of his era, I and mean, he had been in countless award-winning films, you know, like To Kill a Mockingbird, for example. He'd won Academy Awards, talking about Gregory Peck. And they tapped in to the zeitgeist that The Exorcist uh, created, but they took it a step further. And they and and you also, I mean, you, you have to understand that you had um, the top two selling nonfiction books of the 1970s were Eric von Donegan's Chariots of the Gods, and um, Hal Lindsey's Late Great Planet Earth. And there was this massive surge, the Jesus movement, Calvary Chapel. um, There was this massive surge in premillennial eschatology popularity. uh, Movies that were filmed here in Des Moines, like Thief in the Night, that went to movie houses nationwide. And 20th Century Fox perfectly tapped into all of this with a film called The Omen. And um, I think it's one of the best films I've ever seen of any genre The way that it sets the story up, the way that it tells the story, all the modern, advanced marketing techniques that we all take for granted now. You know, remember when we saw the Super Bowl ad for Independence Day 20 years ago and they blew up the White House and we're all like, dude, whatever day that movie is open, we're there. All of this, and George Lucas saw this, he's like, we're going to start, dude, I'm going to. I want the branding and the merchandise. I see what these guys are doing. I'm going you you, to let you guys have the distribution rights to the movies. I want the, I want the branding and the merch. There's a whole cottage industry here that you guys, you guys don't understand you haven't even tapped into yet. Well, The Omen was kind of the Omen that set the stage for all of that. And, and the creepiness of that marketing technique was so overwhelmingly successful that this movie became a smash hit. It is also a great movie. The sequel is very underrated with William Holden, uh, who plays the, the brother of Gregory Peck, who takes over a teenage, well, he's about to become a teenage uh, Damian now, uh, who is the Antichrist, the beast, right out of Revelation 13. And the way the story is, when you watch it in this day and age, this is the true mark. Like, I, I think The Exorcist is still a great film, but if if I had never seen it before and I was Aaron's age, I'd been like, I've seen all these story tropes before. You know why you saw them all before? Because they are all ripped off from The Exorcist. If you watch the original Omen now, I promise you, you're going to be like, that movie kicked my rear end. That's a movie right there. And um, it's it would be on my all-time top 10 list of films in general. Uh, the, the, the crafting, the storytelling, um, the way that it gets into prophecy and theology. Um, I, I think the movie is a piece de resistance. And so it would be my number one horror film of all time. Have either of you guys seen that one?
3: Just the one scene that you introduced me to. It's all for you, Damien. It's
2: all for you, Damien. It's all for you. And if, if that's, I love you, Damien. Yeah, that is the scene where um, he's having his, his birthday party. And they've got this nanny at the estate... And all these kids are gathered around. They look up, and she's got a noose around her neck. She screams out, it's all for you, Damien. And then she jumps and hangs herself to literally offering herself up as an offering to him um, as the devil incarnate. And it's great movie making, great storytelling.
1: Well, honestly, I have not seen it, but I've got to get it on the list. I mean, this show has convinced me, and I, I, and that's a point I want to make about this since this is week two of being on The Blaze. Uh, what we just did here, and then if you think back to the first half hour and talking, you know, it's, uh, standard issue 21st century uh, political analysis – I think that's what's truly special about what we do here. They are intimately connected in terms of we talk about worldview. That's why we spent the whole week doing what we do. Mm-hmm. We we weren't just filling time. Hey, Halloween? What? No, what we just did has everything to do with the political analysis we do on a regular uh, basis, and that's why I mean that's why he sets apart the slasher films that are just gorn, uh, g- gory porn versus the ones that are talking about worldview, Uh, sometimes mocking it, sometimes uh, maybe in spite of themselves. And that's one thing we talk all the time, like directors know what they're doing here. They're actually trying to wake a culture up, whether they know it or not.
2: Yes. And the second film is not quite as well made, but it actually does a better job. The Omen 2 does a better job of of advancing the spiritual narrative that is introduced in the first film. Um, A very young Lance Henriksen, Very young Lance Henriksen plays the prestigious military academy commandant that um, essentially was placed there by Lucifer. One of the things, one of the reoccurring plot lines in the movies is that the devil places people as essentially safeguards, uh, mentors for his offspring as he advances through the ranks. And one of the best scenes I've ever seen in a horror film is in The Omen 2, actually. And Damien is, is a 12, 13-year-old smart aleck, typical teenage, preteen boy, know-it-all. Know and, and so what's fascinating is you're watching him. On one hand, he's just this really cool, you know, smart alecky kid named Damien. On the other hand, he's beginning to come of age into whose who real identity is. And so he's in the back of the class, spit balls and mocking the teacher who's teaching military history. And the teacher who teaches military history is tired of his antics and calls him to the front of the class. And he thinks he's going to embarrass him by showing that he hasn't been paying attention, he's going to flunk the class. And he just starts throwing out dates of military conflicts and calamities in human history, like a machine gun. And he thinks Damien's not going to know any of this stuff because he doesn't pay attention in class. And that's that's really the first moment that he totally assumes his actual legacy. And he just sits there while this goes on for like two minutes and knows the dates and the facts and how many people died and who the winner... and. The class is stunned. That is a that's one of the greatest scenes I've ever seen in a horror film. He's the father of war. Makes sense. Perfect. It, it would it would make sense. All right. So when we come back, um, some fake news or not. We kind of let the media off the hook our first week here on the show. We gotta do something about that.
1: Amen.
2: Yeah, I know, I know if we're not picking on the media, Todd gets antsy. So we're gonna we're gonna rectify that with some fake news or not here when we come back next, live on the blaze, on demand at CRTV. All right, back here on the steve Dace show live on the blaze on demand at crtv let us know what you think about what we think steve at steve com is the email address you can like us on facebook follow us on twitter at steve Dace show let's get to some fake news or not
5: surging interest across all demographics um, you know, now interest doesn't translate to votes necessarily, but it certainly seems like the electorate on both sides across the spectrum is really primed for for November 6th this year. Do you think that's because they care or is that because the party has done a better job contacting them? That's a good question. I don't know. I mean, I, th- I think part of it is. There's just no escaping politics in our everyday lives now. I mean, so everybody is, it feels like they're, they're tuned in, they're locked into what's going on in a way that they haven't necessarily in the past. And that's partly the Trump effect. I mean, he's in the news, right. he's driving the news every day, whether you love him or don't, you can't get away from him. Therefore, I think uh, he, he evokes strong reactions on both sides. And I think that's what we're seeing in these numbers. Right. I think we're seeing that, too. But a lot of people think big turnout is big for Democrats. Do you still believe that? Not necessarily. No. I mean, in fact, it, it depends on the district. It depends on the state. I mean, if it's a if it's a Republican leaning district or Republican leaning state, big turnout would be probably good for Republicans. So I think it's a district by district thing um, overall. And again, each one right. of these races matters. If you have a lot of Democrats, they turn out in very blue districts. That's not going to help Democrats in some of these right. swing districts uh, or any of these red states. I think you have a monitor there. I, like, I love this poll. It was kind of buried in the results here in The Wall Street Journal. The congressional preference in the most competitive districts in the country. It is it is a virtual dead heat. Yeah. So the national number is a plus nine for Democrats, which is which is a strong number. And that would actually correlate to them taking over the House. But that's what caught my eye in these competitive districts. Their generic ballot lead has disappeared. And what that suggests is that Democrats are overperforming, as I just mentioned, in very blue districts, very blue states. Um, but not as much in some of these more competitive districts. And that's that's a good sign for Republicans, I think, just two weeks before the election. Again, you know, I always caution people, let's not make too much of any one single poll, but we have seen some of these similar trends in other polls, especially in President Trump's job approval rating. And do you still, real quick, do you still say health care is the number one issue, the economy is number two, immigration in the top five? How would you rank it? Yeah, that's what we're seeing. I mean, healthcare is definitely seems to be in all these races. Everybody's talking about it. We saw it in the Florida governor's race last night, the debate. Um, but the economy is there, and that was the other thing from the from the Wall Street Journal poll. Dem- Republicans have the best rating on the economy that they've ever had in the history of that poll. All
2: right, that's Tom Bevin from Real Clear Politics with what I thought was some spot on analysis. And one of the things that you know, the distinction of the generic congressional ballot there, gentlemen, compared to the most competitive races. You know, I made this point several months ago. You guys will remember this. And I encouraged our audience, even though I've not done a lot of the wonky data stuff this election, I have tried to use my experience with wonky data stuff to help you guys be more discriminating consumers when you watch this analysis. And remember what I said earlier, we don't have national referendums in America. We have nationalized state and local elections. And those are different things. And so if I'm right, that the the electorate is not polarized, but balkanized meaning you have such systemic cultural differences now uh, between two warring tribes that there's just it doesn't it doesn't matter what you believe. It didn't it, if you were if you were in the wrong tribe in Yugoslavia it didn't matter what you believed you just couldn't win outside of your tribal boundaries because of how Balkanized the cult, the culture was. If I'm right about that <clears throat> then polls like generic congressional balloting you need to handicap them. Like in golf. So when you see someone has a plus nine lead, it really means it's plus four, five, or six. Because Hillary Clinton won the presidential election by almost the exact amount the RCP average said she was going to win by. And even if you take California out, she still wins the popular vote by like almost a million votes. But it didn't matter. It doesn't matter if she wins California by 5 million votes or 15 million votes. It's the same amount of electoral college votes. And that's something that a poll can't factor in. And and that's why you want to know, yeah, okay. And so the Democrats have you know, more energy, but how many places can they really win? So like last night when I had to turn in my predictions for CRTV's election night coverage of what I thought was going to happen, you know what I did? I did in five minutes. I went to every Senate seat that was up for grabs in a state that Trump won in 2016 with the exception of West Virginia, and I gave that seat to the Republicans. Even Indiana, where the Republicans were behind, now today they're pulling ahead, actually. And then I and then I when I looked at RCP's list of toss-up districts, every toss-up district in Illinois, Maine, and California, I gave those all to the Democrats. That's all I did, because I I think I really think it could be that simple. I really think that the differences between the two are so stark right now like i don't i don't think a moderate there aren't the, the moderate republican who can win states like in places in california are largely going to disappear and the moderate democrat that can win in places like uh you know um tennessee or georgia are going to largely disappear. That's my working theory, and Tom Bevan sort of addressed that there, Todd.
1: And I think that analysis is the thing that gives me the most pause about uh, predicting a, a slight uh, Republican hold of the House. If the, if, if the nation was polarized instead of balkanized, as you say, I would I, I would increase my level of confidence. Yes, because polarization
2: would work towards your— what's the, Let's define that. What's the difference between polarization and balkanization? Polarization means I am primarily driven by a negative reaction to you, Okay. I agree that we are polarized.
1: And that would be more or less the same just about everywhere yeah, you go, and that right, and that would degree. definitely
2: feed into whoever's dumbest last loses. Because if my number one driving thing is, is how much I don't like you compared to how much I do like me, polarization plays, right? Okay. And then the last thing you would do to polarize the other side's base to mobilize against you would do you in. I agree that we're polarized. I though don't believe it tells the entire picture. And that's right? true and i think balkan i think balkanized means there are we are we are co- we are coagulating congregating in in places of people of, that are largely similar to our beliefs so the amount of places where polarization could swing a place are we're running out of that ground and we're largely kind of lining up now behind each side's maginot line this is this is The left America and what's left of America. And there really aren't, you know, I think there's only like 31 toss-up districts on the entire RCP house map. Out of 435 seats, guys. 31 toss-up seats? That's not a lot. Okay. And so that goes to show you and the Democrats need what, 25 to in order to win the House. It's like that goes to show and there'll be some upsets. All right, there'll be some incumbents that people have left for dead that'll win and some incumbents that people thought were sure bets are going to go down. But when RCP is telling you two weeks before the election, there's only 31 toss-up seats out of 435, that speaks to me more to balkanization than polarization. I totally agree. All right, next clip.
5: Okay, let's look at the House as well. There way a flip side of uh, the Senate numbers, right? let's put up the House numbers right now. You see a uh, seven and nine chance, six and seven chance the Democrats win control, one in seven chance Republicans keep control. So there it comes down to 85% chance the Democrats win control. That sounds a lot bigger than it is, right?
4: Yeah, look, I mean, if you were running a business um, and I told you there's a 15% chance or a 20% chance that your key supplier won't make its delivery you would treat that as a very tangible real-world risk, and you would do things to hedge against it. Um, The thing about the House is that you cannot circle 23 districts where you say, "Oh, I know for sure Democrats will win these. Maybe 10, 12, 15 look very likely. However, you have a field of maybe 80, 90, 100 potential pickups. Mathematically, probably the dice come up <laughs> good enough for Democrats in enough of those districts, but like they're not a lot of guarantees and the House is very much fought at a district by district level.
5: And only a handful of seats where the Democrats could lose the seat.
4: And that's why, I mean, it's, it really is the mere image of the Senate where Democrats have so much exposure in the Senate. All these incumbents, you know, all these very red states, just the reverse of that in the House, where Democrats are kind of in a no-lose situation almost literally in the House where they might have four or five seats they could lose versus 100 GOP seats in play. Um, Not a lot of guarantees, but that's why we show like a very wide range, anywhere from a 20 seat gain if Democrats have a disappointing night, which is not quite enough, up to 50, 60 seats if the turnout is is very high. What What are the biggest X factors that
5: increase the uncertainty in your model?
4: It is turnout. I mean, its turnout is always difficult um, for pollsters to forecast and the fact that you have a lot of districts that have not had competitive races in a long time, turnout's even more difficult to forecast there than in a state like Florida for example. And we have two weeks to go. Um, you know, I would not put it past us for, have, for us to have another October surprise or two in the era of, of Trumpian news cycles.
2: Alright, so that's Nate Silver from five thirty eight, who's probably should have retired after the 2012 election. That was his George Costanza kind of leave on a high note because he hasn't been right about a lot since i do like though i wanted to play that clip though guys because i like the way this is where i do think there's some real news is the way that he put further context like when you just see a tweet from nate silver 85 percent chance democrats win the house and you think well that's way over the top ridiculous too high but you have to understand if you, people are taking it too literally i mean if if i'm a business owner if you tell me going in there's a 15% chance that um, the deal I'm about to do is going to blow up, I'm not going to just—I'd rather have an 85% chance that it's going to work than not work. But if there's a that 15% would be enough for me to say, I'd like to see if I can get that down to 8 or 9. You know what I'm saying? And I think that's, a, that, that's an important contextual distinction that I thought Nate offered there. Here's something I disagree with him, though, on, gentlemen. There aren't eighty or ninety potential house seat wins. Here's why. To do that, Democrats have to have to win win a house seat or two in a swing district in a Tennessee, in a Texas, in um in an Indiana. And if my theory, and even if Todd's more right than me right now, that we're we're not yet to balkanization, but we're still at more hyperpolarization. Even if your even if your model is more right than mine right now. Whether we are polarized or balkanized, the amount of voters who will go in and say, well, I'm going to vote for Ted Cruz for Senate, but I really like this one moderate Democrat in my Dallas-Arlington suburb, so I'm going to vote for them. That's not how this works. That's not how this works. That's not how any of this works. All right, It's highly unlikely you're voting for Ted Cruz for Senate and a Democrat for Congress anywhere in the state of Texas. Highly unlikely. Why? Because it's a resoundingly Republican state. You might get some of those in a 50-50 state like a Florida. Like I could see some people that like, like Andrew Gillum as a person. And they think, you know, he's a fresh face. I want somebody new. Ron DeSantis has been in office, you know? And so I tend to lean Republican, but I am vote for him for governor or the other way around. Okay. In a state where that, that's truly 50-50 more often than not like a Florida, that's possible. There aren't too many of those states left. And there aren't too many of those states that are at stake in this election actually. Most of the house seats that are at stake are taking place in places where Democrats are in charge and most of the senate seats that are taking place are taking, or senate seats at stake are taking place in states where Republicans are in charge, which means the amount of voters who would go in there and split their ticket is shrinking. And whether we are polarized, if it's just polarization, you're more inclined to vote against somebody than for anybody anyway. So you're not you're probably not inclined to say, well, I kind of like this Republican and like Democrat. You're largely being driven by a disdain for Republicans or Democrats. And if we're Balkanized, and my my assessment is more correct, same thing goes into play. The minutes you see an R or D after somebody's name, you're already like verboten, you know, um marked. You're in the other tribe, can't vote for you. So I don't believe there are 70 or 80 house seats that could swing because there's just not that 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 much available swing voters anymore. That's my thought.
1: Well, and I think why he's wrong is I just I I think his uh, Nate Silver's thumbs are perpetually on the scale. Now, he did admit after the last election, like I, I clearly don't understand things uh, like I thought I did. I think that's probably still true. But unlike you, because you have a a broader um, job description—you're not just data analysis. You mm-hmm. came out and just flat out admitted I, I got to kind of recalibrate things. Mm-hmm. I don't think he can afford to admit that. But so I just—no, he has the
2: exact same house rating. I think our Robino at Conservative Review pointed out a little while ago on Twitter, his house rating today is exactly what it was two weeks before the 2016 election in favor of Democrats. So I don't think he's changed. As, and 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 I agree with you. If he's talking about 80 or 90 winnable seats for anybody now, right? Then he clearly hasn't altered his model. Uh, at all, because th- there's just not that many places where, where the other side can go in and beat the other side in a road game anymore. You, you just you're, When you go on the road now in politics, 75% of the time, man, the other team picked the referees, they picked the fans, they picked the rules. It, you have to be so much better than them to go into their stadium and beat them. There's just not a lot of toss-up road games in politics anymore. Guys, we just saw this. Remember leading up to the 2010 cycle where the Republicans had huge gains? Remember they won the New Jersey governor race, the Virginia governor race? They beat. Ted, they won the special election for Ted Kennedy's seat. They were winning road games, right? Yes. In this cycle, we saw almost the exact same energy in polls for Democrats that we saw for Republicans leading into 2010. The only road win they have is a district in Pennsylvania that's actually been gerrymandered out of existence. It's not going to exist. It's not up for vote in this election because it's going away and the Senate race in Alabama where the Republican machine was working with Democrats to defeat Roy Moore. Those are their only road wins. They didn't, they didn't. And, and, and it's not because the energy level for them isn't as high as it was for Republicans in 2010. It's because there's not, it, it doesn't matter how much money John Ossoff is, was going to raise in that Georgia special election. He wasn't going to beat Karen Handel because we're balkanized. And enough people were going to look in that district, were going to look at the D after his name, and they weren't going to care what commercials he ran or what nice things he said or peace he's, he's for defunding Planned Parenthood a little.
3: So He was already uh, lost. So back in 2012 and, and previous, in 2014, uh, those road wins that you talked about for Republicans, is that because we weren't balkanized then? We
2: weren't quite as balkanized as we are now. We were more polarized than balkanized. And I think because we're balkanized polarization is, a, is like a tantrum. And when you guys, it's like, you know, when it's, like, it's why guys, when we have a fight, we, we're really polarized and we have a conflict and then what often happens after that's over? Moving on. Moving on. When you're balkanized, though, the cement hardens. And that, that, that becomes, <clears throat> you know, uh, Hatfields and McCoys is balkanization. <laughs> All right? And I think that's where, we're, if, if we're not there yet, man, we are, on that, we're not. Can balkanization come out and play? If we, if if this, if we aren't there yet, we are. We are knocking on the door of balkanization. And I just, when Real Clear Politics has thirty-one, only thirty-one swing seats in the whole country out of four hundred thirty-five seats, I think that speaks to there's just not a lot of places where you can put on the white jersey, go on the road, and win.
1: That's why I'm more looking forward to this election, and that's saying something uh, for me than anything else. I think we'll finally know something,
2: one way or the other. Yes will know that either things have shifted or that they yeah. haven't. And that, or they shifted in the way that we didn't think. See, I do think things have shifted. I just don't think they've shifted in the way most people think. I don't believe Trump shifted the electorate. Even S.E. Cup, who I like S.E. Cup most of the time, but I don't, I don't agree with her. I agree with what you said to her today on Twitter. Yeah. She claims Trump has emasculated the Republicans. No, 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 no. The Republicans spading and neutering themselves is what led to people falling for a fake, fake tough guy named Donald Trump. Trump is not the cause or solution. And I'm spoiling my next book right here, because this is this is the alpha and omega of my next book. Trump is not the cause or solution to any of the problems you're seeing right now. He is the symptom. He is the result, period. He is the result. So I don't believe we crossed or like I said to a buddy of mine today on Twitter. I don't believe we've cro- that, it, that we crossed some Rubicon of inciv- the incivility in the 2016 election. I believe the 2016 election was evidence that we had already crossed that Rubicon. Agreed. And the Democrats looked into the abyss of a candidate almost no Americans, even their own voters, liked and said, we're going to shove her down your throat anyway. And Republicans said, well, I know he's a grifter, a liar, a hedonist, but he's not a communist, so I guess we'll rally around him and, and end up arguing against many of the points we made most of our lives because we can't let the communist win. That, those, are symptom, those are symptoms of a problem, guys. Those aren't the disease cause carriers. They're not, they're not carrying the problem. The, the fact Hillary Clinton was still politically viable in this country. The fact Donald Trump was ever taken seriously in the Family Values Party, let alone beat a primary of 16 combatants, those things are symptomatic of where we are, not the cause of where we are. All right, we're out of time for the rest of our clips this week, which is too bad. I thought we had a couple of good ones. What'd you guys learn here today? Quickly, Aaron. What'd you learn?
3: Um, well, I learned that uh, there's a lot more than meets the eye when it comes to uh, horror movies because I, I'm tempted because I was I, I was you know I was raised a homeschooled kind of kind of sensitive kid and so I just thought that most horror was just corn. So it was a good conversation. It took up more than half the show.
2: Here, what'd you learn, Todd?
1: That the scene and the Omen that you introduced the world to—it's all for you—may have as much to do with contemporary American politics as anything else.
2: Yeah. These are the kinds of cults we're seeing right now, no doubt about it. John three seventeen. The truth straight. No chaser. Steve Dace.
0: On the Blaze Radio Network.